I'm Paul Brady, regional editor at The Cork Report, and this is my podcast, A Northern Wine Odyssey, part of The Cork Report Podcast Network. To find us, search for Cork Report in Spotify, Apple, or Google, and more. I want to give an extended shout out today to Dave Miller, the composer and artist behind our opening and closing music. I think music in podcasts is very important. I'm not sure that everybody realizes that. It totally helps me get into the groove that I want to be in when talking to all the different various guests. That track, by the way, is called Ellie and Arthur, and it's from Dave's self-titled album, which you can find at most places that you stream music or wherever you purchase music. Check out the whole album. It's super fun start to finish. Go down the rabbit hole. Look into the other musicians who perform on that album. Check out their music. I promise you will not be sorry. Today on the podcast, we're talking about Nouveau wines, just like Beaujolais Nouveau, except for made in New York and with different grapes. Talk to winemakers Lynn Fahey of Cuca Spring Vineyards and Nathan Kendall of Nathan Kendall. And here's our conversation. us from the bright lights of Geneva, New York is Lynn. Lynn, what, uh, what's shaking in Geneva today? Um, snow. So, uh, late winter this year. So we've just been, we got like maybe two inches of snow this morning, which was lovely, but I'm kind of ready for winter to be over. <laughs> it has been a, a very, uh, wintry winter. It is snowing down here in the Hudson Valley uh, area near Rhinebeck, where I am. Also, Nathan, how are the uh, how's the thriving metropolis of Dundee Village? Oh, it, nothing ever changes there, so that's consistent. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's uh, definitely a consistent wet uh, winter, which I'm okay with. But you know, um, just working on some riddling and paperwork, and that's about it. The the uh, the off season times of a winemaker, Lynn. What uh, what do you find yourself uh, doing mainly during this uh, during the off season? Uh, you know, I spend a lot of time just reorganizing the cellar, like looking at things, being like, "Why is this here? Where could this go?" And then, uh, I mean, this early winter, we were kind of right into bottling uh, in the end of January, early February. So I'm taking a little bit of a hiatus from that before we get back into it in April. So I'm just enjoying the downtime, spending some time in the vineyard as well, getting ready to prune. So it's pretty quiet. Nathan, uh, what are, uh, what do your currently fermenting wines or already fermented wines have you doing to them these days? Um, not much, just kind of keeping them topped and checking in every now and again to see if they're healthy. Uh, I think we've only got maybe two wines uh, that have finished fermenting, um, one being the traditional method and the other being the uh, Nouveau-ish Cabernet Franc. Everything else is still fairly active. Okay, and before we jump into our topic, which is uh, Nouveau, uh, as the uh, famous from the Beaujolais Nouveau, but we're talking about Nouveau styles made here in New York with uh, various different red grapes. Lynn, I've, I've learned that you are a, a big fan of homeware, and I'm curious to know, what kind of wine glasses do you drink from at home? Um, it really depends. Like right now I have this slight obsession with, uh, colored glassware. <laughs> so I've recently just bought these like beautiful, uh, thin stemmed blue coupes, 
where like the glass itself is blue and the stem is clear. But I mean, for normal wine drinking, I have a couple different sets of like white wine glasses, which I use for almost everything. And then a pretty large selection of Pinot glasses. Um, but I don't know, like if it's, yeah, a normal glass of wine, I just have the white wine glass, but I'm always looking for an excuse to use a coupe. <laughs> so uh, we drink a lot of bubbles in my house. Okay, that's uh, that's pretty intense. I, I like this devotion to, to nice glassware. Nathan, I know that you use whatever is not broken over at your place. Um, so, you know, red solo cups most of the time. But uh, I'm curious as to how you both feel about stemless wine glasses. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm... I don't know how to answer that one. I guess I'm okay with it. You know, I'm not going to judge anyone on what their preferred. Like if you went to a wine bar or something like that and you ordered whatever it was that you ordered, you know, let's, let's pretend price has nothing to do with it. And you were given it in a well-polished, perfectly presentable stemless wine glass. Would you be okay with that? Uh, I guess, I I guess so. I, I would be less okay with, uh, I don't know, like if it's a a wine that's supposed to be cold and then my hands are going to be all over it, warming it up faster, I'd be a little like turned off, but I don't know for my house, like in the summer, I really don't care, but at a wine bar or something, I think I would prefer to have a stem just so I'm not like my hands aren't heating the wine or changing the temperature faster. Do you really find that that happens? Because I mainly drink out of stemless wine glasses at home. That's why I'm bringing this up because I really like them. And I have never once felt that my hands were affecting the temperature. And the thing is, like, I don't drink out of them frequent enough to know that. But I, I have some here, but I rarely use them. Nate, you, you're okay with them more or less? Well, I mean, to be honest, I don't think Lynn's drinking fast enough. <laughs> Maybe that's also, the problem. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, instead of nursing your, your white wine, you know, just go for it. Um, I I would prefer one with a stem, but I mean, I'd kind of think, uh, you know, you're in someone else's house. Maybe you don't want to offend them. So suck it up. Yeah. Like or I'm not somebody a, else's I'm not bar or them. restaurant. Because the thing yeah. about it, like I'm asking because I'm doing market research and I'm using you both. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, stemless wine glasses are far less likely to break. So at a restaurant or a wine bar where cost of goods are something that you need to have a look at very seriously, stemless wine glasses can really go a long way. But, you you know, they're, that's the, the common thinking is why are you giving me this stemless glass at a wine bar and – I'm hoping as we get to the other side of this pandemic that people are a little bit more forgiving for things like that because glasses are expensive and they break all the time. I think in my household, I've just accepted that, and which is why I, I mean, I don't, I try not to spend, like what I love to have Zaltos in my house, of course, but I would never buy them because they would just break the moment I <clears throat> brought them in. But I find that at least around my house, stemless and stemmed glassware probably break at an even level because of the amount of consumption that's coming out of them at any given time. But uh, I don't know. I like, I think they're really, I'm not offended by them, but I like the way a stem feels when I hold it more or less. Cool. Okay. Yeah. I remember years and years ago when I was either at somebody's house or, or given a stemless wine glass at a bar, I probably kind of did a double take at first. And then like, honestly, this is going to sound sort of very like not cool and not sommelier like, but I remember seeing a, a, a video somewhere of Robert Parker tasting wine at his house and then like, like doing his work with a stemless glass as one of the glasses that he used for certain wines or whatever. And I'm just thinking like, well, okay, if it's, uh, if it's good enough for the most influential wine critic in the world, it's good enough for me and they break less. So cool. Um, or not cool. Probably most you're both thinking that's one of the most not cool things you've ever said, Paul. Anyway, um, let's, let's uh, get into our topic, which is Nouveau wines made in the Finger Lakes where you're both full-time winemakers. 
Uh, we're talking about Nouveau wines made from red grapes in particular. You both have similar backgrounds, though. So before we get into the details of these Nouveau wines, I want to hear a little bit from both of you. Because you both have made wine on the West Coast, and you both have also made wine in the Southern Hemisphere. So Nathan, quickly walk us through your uh, your winemaking career as it relates to you being outside of New York State. And then, Lynn, you'll do the same. Yeah. So, um, I mean, when I started out, I figured there was only – you could only learn so much by directly jumping into employment in the Finger Lakes. Um, and I also like to travel, so I took advantage of my thirst for knowledge as well as travel and just kind of packed up and hit the West Coast and um, – you know, went to regions where they focused on varieties that I was passionate about and then quickly learned, well, hey, you know, you can escape New York's brutal winters by going to Australia, New Zealand, South America and working down there and, you know, getting twice the amount of knowledge uh, per year in theory. So I kind of worked that for uh, five, six years and until I felt I had a decent enough amount of knowledge in my head to come back here and and make wines in a style that I believed in. And you've also done a couple harvests in Europe, right, Nathan? Yeah, I did a full one in um, the Mosul, and I actually came back later that winter and in the spring to do the vineyard work as well. And you've done some work in Spain, too. Uh, that's more or less consulting, um, which that's... Uh, that's kind of on the back burner at the moment with the whole pandemic and not being able to travel. So we're kind of pumping the brakes. We still have about one vintage complete that's going into bottle next week. And um, the second vintage, we, we cut production back significantly because the pandemic. Gotcha. Uh, okay, Lynn, walk us through uh, your synopsis of your winemaking career. Yeah, so uh, mine's a little less well-traveled, but uh, I actually did my first vintage in New Zealand um, at a pretty large winery. We did about 14,000 tons in the Riverlands in Marlborough, um, <clears throat> but it was really cool. I mean, I worked in, you know, Sauvignon Blanc country, but I, you know, in, in a place like that, you're kind of pigeonholed into a having one specific job. And mine was in um, red wine fermentation. So while everybody else was making Sauvignon Blanc, I was working with Pinot Noir, which I knew absolutely nothing about wine when I took that job. Uh, and so everything was like, I couldn't, I didn't understand at first. And then it was just amazing, which led me to apply for jobs on the West Coast of the United States. So I came back to the US after about a year of traveling um, and working in New Zealand and ended up with the job in Oregon <clears throat> at a Trisadum where I was worked mostly with uh, Pinot Noir and Riesling. And after my first harvest there, I was offered a full-time job, which I was very eager to take because uh, not only did I work with Trisadum, I also worked with um, Louis Jadot's uh, resonance project that they started in Oregon uh, back in, I think, 2013 was their first vintage and then after being there for a few years and <clears throat> just seeing how the industry was changing um, and how big it was getting, I just became just the smaller, small, like ever growing smaller piece of this giant puzzle that was the Oregon wine industry. And as with someone with no education in wine, I just kind of started to look for the next frontier. And since I'm from New York originally, it seemed like a natural fit to come back to the Finger Lakes. So did you get to know Jacques Lardier, the mad scientist genius behind the Jadot wines for like three plus decades? Yes, I worked with Jacques for uh, three vintages. Um, he is a character and a half. I mean, half the time, I don't know that I really understood him, but uh, I have memories of uh, sitting in the conference room, tasting through all of Trisadum Chardonnays with Jacques, and he got up from the table grabbed the marker and started drawing on the whiteboard this graph of malic acid or what he thought. And it was a <clears throat> linear, kind of a linear graph. And then with a big spiral in the middle with all these molecules. And he was explaining how like you have to find a balance with malic. And if you go too much malic, all the molecules are very far apart, but too little. And they're very tight, close together. I mean, he's very into spirals and biodynamics. So it was quite a trip uh, working with him. <laughs> 
Yeah, there's this uh, restaurant that I like to frequent when I have the opportunity to be in Paris because it has typically had this vertical of Moulin Vent, Beaujolais, from Chateau de Jacques, which was the Beaujolais house of Jadot. And back in those early, late 90s, early 2000s vintages, those would have been overseen by Jacques Lardier. And it, it, it's just been really so cool to be able to drink Beaujolais with that kind of age on it f- coming from a from a producer like that. Nathan, you were there with me once. Uh, we, did we have more than one bottle or did we just get one of the Beaujolais? Uh, no, we came back the next night and ordered a different vintage. <laughs> I know. It was like... One was from the late 90s, and I think one was from the early 2000s. And and it's just – they're so fairly priced, and it's just hard to come by Beaujolais with uh, with that kind of age on it. Uh, so really uh, recommend uh, – highly recommend if you can get your hands on some Cru Beaujolais with 10, 20-plus years of age on it, definitely uh, uh, take that opportunity. So before we jump into the Nouveau discussion, I was just thinking about this earlier as I was – thinking of each of your careers, what is the primary reason that like every single winemaker I know who's your age and younger does seem to go down and do at least one harvest in the Southern Hemisphere? Is it specifically to to just get more experience in a different place or is it literally to just to travel? Because it seems like everyone does that. It's almost like a rite of passage uh, nowadays to become a winemaker. So go ahead, both of you just jump in there. Um, I mean, for me, it was actually, I, I, I think a lot, it's a little bit of both. I think the experience, I mean, there, especially where I worked, working at such a large volume, you learn a lot about wine logistics, just at the, and so many moving parts. And they have a lot of really interesting technology that, you know, we don't really see here in our region. And <clears throat> in fact, I didn't really see an organ at the time either. Um, but, you know, and I think it is travel. I mean, New Zealand, Australia, other beautiful places to be, and it's a great culture to be around. I ended up, I only went there. Um, I knew nothing about wine before going, but I'd met somebody who told me about the wine industry and told me to apply in Australia and New Zealand since the harvest was coming up. So it just like happened to work out that when I was looking for, to enter the wine industry, that that's what harvest was kind of next um, on like coming up in the, the year, but yeah, I think it's a little bit of, a little bit of both. Nate, you too. Yeah, I completely agree with her. I mean, it, it is nice to escape winter. And I mean, not just like taking in the, the culture of that particular region, but what you're getting is people from all over the world uh, kind of coming together. You're working with Italians, people from Spain, France, South America, the United States, Canada, you get kind of this little mini melting pot of culture, you know, um, not just at work, but in your off hours. So it's, it's a great deal of fun. It's educational. Uh, like I said, if you're not into winter, you get to get away from that. Um, and it, like you mentioned, so many people are doing it now. Uh, it almost seems like mandatory to do it in order to really build out a well-rounded resume these days. Well, I think it's interesting that you both mentioned, well, Lynn, you mentioned, and Nate, I just know this about you, that you both worked in very large wineries down there. Nathan, I remember once you talking about how that was one place, if not the place, where you really learned blending, and which is a really important, useful skill as a, as a winemaker. Um, do you think that you both took away skills from working in those huge wineries from down there? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I kind of got sold on a fairy tale um, winery that when you got there, it wasn't, you know, the little boutique place you were thinking about or they told you all about. Um, and it was a rather big winery and they did a lot of, you know, good wines, but they worked with a very well-renowned uh, MW and he would just come in on a daily basis and work the wines through fermentation and then simultaneously be working on blending the previous vintages. And he was taking, you know, these wines that on their own were, were okay to pretty good. And just through blending made these exceptional wines. 
Yeah, I, I mean, it's just from my perspective that being that was my first uh, harvest ever and had never seen a pump in my life or a press or anything remotely close to what a winery might look like. Um, I think the biggest takeaway for me, and I think it's important, I think people should work at a big winery at least once in their career, even if it's just a harvest, but like just wine logistics, working with so many moving parts. I mean, we would get basically dump trucks full of Sauvignon Blanc grapes. And we had 20 presses operating 24 hours a day. Um, and so you're just moving all the time and just like that kind of quick pace, especially during harvest, like learning how to navigate all of that, I think is, has been really important to, you know, some of my success working with different wineries since then is just being able to move and see what the whole day is going to look like and how to forecast that out. Um, and I mean, I didn't do as much blending. I got to, I worked with a lot of custom crush clients. so. It was this kind of hierarchy of how everything trickled down into what we did every day, but um, I still a great experience, and I did get to taste a lot of what we were making, which you know when you're working with that many people is a bit of a rarity. Cool. Okay, let's uh, let's get into the to the discussion on the subject of nouveau wines. So, nouveau is a is a type of wine that has been around, at least in my wine drinking life, since I started drinking wine. My my parents drank French wines. And uh, when I was younger, I, I was able to spend some time actually living in France um, with my family because we moved there. And I can remember when Beaujolais Nouveau season would come around because so many of the bars and restaurants in Paris would advertise, you know, at d'arrivée, meaning it's here, the Beaujolais Nouveau, which is a wine in its simplest form that is made from the current vintage. So let's use 2020, for example, because that's both of your wines that we're going to be talking about. So let's go back to last fall. And Beaujolais Nouveau are wines that were made in particular in Beaujolais, which is where Nouveau wines are the most famous. They're made with a Gamay Noir grape, and they're released on the third Thursday by law of November every year. So we have wines that are finished wines bottled with fruit from that very year. So is that a, a, a good, simple explanation? Do either of you two want to add anything to that? No, I think you got it. Okay. Yeah, that, that sounds good. <laughs> okay, so we're talking about, in it, it, again, in its simplest form, red wine that is from grapes processed the same year that they were essentially grown. So that is a, a fun and popular sort of happening that happens every year in November. And the Beaujolais Nouveau are shipped internationally all over the world. And Beaujolais has certainly increased in popularity, not just Nouveau, but the uh, higher pedigreed bottlings, whether that's um, the next level up, which would just be Beaujolais Rouge, and then the the level up from that would be Beaujolais Village, and then finally you get uh, the Cru Beaujolais, which is the highest classification. And there are ten different villages um, that can produce Cru Beaujolais at this time, and those wines are made artisanally, however the the, the winery's tradition is. So you each made a nouveau this year, uh, Nathan. You made one from Cabernet Franc, Lynn. Yours from Blaufrankisch. Those are both popular red grapes in the Finger Lakes. Now, if we go back just uh, just longer than 10 years ago to when I started tasting wines from the Finger Lakes, so this is around 08, 09, red wine was just in a completely different place. I'm not saying that there weren't good red wines around, but Cabernet Franc back then certainly was not the Cabernet Franc that we know today, which is sort of the all-powerful uh, New York State red grape uh, at the moment, at least. Blaufrankisch, maybe similar. I don't know when the first plantings went in. Maybe, maybe you two do, but uh, it's another one of the the red grapes from the Finger Lakes, in particular, in New York, that has a little bit of a of a spotlight on it. So, two different grapes, Blaufrankisch, of course, being uh, originally coming from the Central European winemaking regions, and then Cabernet Franc uh, of French fame from the Loire Valley and uh, the right bank of Bordeaux. So, Nathan, let's talk about Cabernet Franc. Before we get into how you processed your nouveau, 
Cabernet Franc, in your experience, and you've been making wine for a little while now in the Finger Lakes, walk us through the quality that the growers are able to achieve with Cabernet Franc today versus 10 years ago. Oh, you're making this one tricky on me. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's a bit of a learning curve with growing anything. Um, and I think back then, the uh, we weren't growing it necessarily how we are now. Um, and that maybe we hadn't exactly figured out crop levels and maybe they were being a little too heavily cropped, which I mean can still be the case today in some vineyards. And um, there was when you say heavily cropped, you mean literally trying to produce too big a yield of fruit, correct? Yes and no. I mean, there's a thing of vine balance in that you balance the size of your crop to the size of your vine to the size of your canopy. So it's not just some you know magical number. I think it's different for every vineyard and for every site. And I just don't think we had it dialed in back then like we do now. Um, less manual labor was happening out there. So, I mean, you didn't have people going through and doing shoot thinning and, uh, fruit thinning and they weren't removing leaves. So the, the wines back then tended to be, um, quite vegetal. And I mean, you know, Cabernet Franc naturally has an herbaceousness to it, but back then, um, it would have been in my uh, opinion, a little excessive. Gotcha. So it, it really was, it, it just took more dialing it in because I mean, obviously there's climate change, but we that's a subject for another day. The climate, climate hasn't changed that drastically in 10 years or so. So it really is just better, better work in the vineyard, more attention focused on a grape because it's been proven that you can make these delicious Cabernet Francs that are unique and show this sense of New York or the Finger Lakes every year. Would you agree? Yeah, no, I'd completely agree with that. I mean, yeah, I, I think I just and they are different. They they are different from expressions of it elsewhere. Uh, the ones that I tend to like are made in a little bit lighter style than the ones that are trying to push the ripeness or go for uh, a little bit more full bodied. I don't dislike those wines when they're made well. I love those wines, but it seems to me that with a, a certain desire from the winemaker, you can really make some consistently like light on its feet, refreshing, lifted Cabernet Franc that is very satiating uh, in, in most vintages. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's a style that I've been going for from day one because I like those lighter, fresher, a uh, little more savory style of Cabernet Francs. So for me, that's um, something that we can do consistently well in the Finger Lakes. And Nathan, you're making Cabernet Franc now for your own label of your namesake, and that's going to be released uh, this year for the first time. And you've been making it for your other label, Hickory Hollow, which is your family's winery. Um, and uh, and then you do have one more brand, which is Chapica, which is working with uh, Labrusca grapes, making both sparkling and still wines. I kind of wanted to just uh, give all your brands a shout out there. Lynn, uh, you are the full-time winemaker at Cuca Spring on Cuca Lake. And prior to that, you were the assistant winemaker at Anthony Road on Seneca Lake, which I would bet is probably the first place that you really started working with Blau Frankish as a varietal wine. Is that correct? Uh, that is correct. Um, and... It's a wine, my, the first Blau Frankish I ever had was actually when I was living in Oregon, we had bought a Slovenian Blau Frankish, um, and I had never heard of the variety before, I knew nothing about it, but when I tasted it, what compared to a lot of the Pinot Noirs I was drinking from Oregon, which are pretty dense wines, um, I really enjoyed this refreshing, kind of bright acidity, red cherry um, character I was getting from the variety. And I, so I started to read into it a lot more uh, and was becoming more and more fascinated with it. And then it just happened that when I moved here, it was a variety that was being grown. And it, I mean, still not super widely planted. I mean, compared, especially compared to Cabernet Franc, but it's definitely gaining in popularity, not only as a red wine, but it, I think people are seeing its potential uh, in as a base for rosé wine or uh, even sparkling. Uh, I think it's one of the more versatile red varieties that I've ever worked with that has really good consistency here year after year, um, you know, almost 
non-vintage depending. And so back to the subject of Nouveau, famously, Beaujolais Nouveau is made with a Gamay Noir grape, and we just don't have a lot of that planted in New York yet. However, I think that will change. We're, we're seeing an increase in plantings, and there's certainly interest there. I know that. I hear growers and wineries all the time talk about wanting to plant Gamay, um, but I'm, I'm told it's slightly hard to, to, to get hands on the cuttings. Uh, has do do either of you know anything about that? Like what it takes to get more gamay in the ground here in New York? Uh, yeah, I'm not exactly sure on that one. I mean, it's the, uh, the demand is there, but I think the issue we have is that the people who want that variety and want to work with it don't necessarily farm their own land or have the acreage. And yeah. I think, uh, Lynn, I was going to say, at, over, I know at Anthony Road, there there was talk of trying to get some and put some in. Don't know that it's happened yet. Were you around for any of those conversations? Uh, yeah. I mean, when I first started there, they were planting uh, maybe a little over 10 acres um, over the Nut Road Vineyard. And a lot of it came down to just availability. Um, sometimes it's hard. I don't think there are really any local nurseries propagating it at the, at the moment. Um, and then, so we're trying to, to get specific varieties working with nurseries out in California and they just may not have certain things in stock and you kind of have to plan almost, I think two years out to get something that specific. Uh, and that was just kind of, and that was for a couple of varieties we were looking to get one year. We, there just was nothing available. Yeah, I, I know there are some new plantings that have gone in down here in the Hudson Valley and maybe up in the Finger Lakes. And I have not heard of anything going in on Long Island, but I would think it will happen. They have nice, well-draining sandy soils out there. I think it could do well there. It does well in northern Michigan, where they also have sandy soils. That's that's kind of why I make that uh, assertion. And then it does really well in Ontario, Canada. Uh, so there's definitely the potential in our in our climate here in New York, and I, and I do think in our lifetime we will see an increase in Gamay Noir production. Um, but let's let's talk about the Nouveau wines now that you've made, and we'll sort of work backwards um, just to just to spice up our lives a little bit. Let's talk about uh, our experiences drinking these wines. So I I had both of your wines over this last weekend. We're recording this on a Tuesday. And Nathan, the Cabernet Franc that you made was exactly the sort of red wine that I think uh, on on sort of a nightly or weekly basis is like just a really good bistro wine that you can have with almost any kind of food. You can drink it at room temperature, at cellar temperature with even more of a chill on it. Yours in particular, which I know you made in a very low intervention style with no added sulfur, uh, was it had all the kind of nice, typical kind of fruit salad flavors that we could talk about for days. And then it still had a very brooding, kind of savory herbal Cabernet Franc character while still being very light on its feet. Um, is that, and, and Lynn, please talk about your experiences because I know you guys swapped bottles uh, drinking the, that particular Nouveau Cabernet Franc, which was your first Nouveau that, you've, that you made, correct, Nate? Yeah, uh, it was. It's um, I've kind of been inching towards that style since uh, 2017. Um, I made a uh, Cabernet Franc for Hickory Hollow, and um, the the fruit, the flavors got ripe in the vineyard. The acid was a little higher than normal, and I thought, you know, let's kind of let's kind of run with that. Like, let's not force it into the barrel program. So I did a super delicate extraction, um, pressed it off pretty quick, aged it in stainless, and did a partial mallow, and ended up with a wine that I only served chilled to um, people. Uh, and it released it early, and it was very well received. In 2019, I had the similar similar conditions with uh, the vineyard. So again, I, I pushed that style out, and there was a, and a huge fan base for it, um, and it was really, really well liked. So in 2020, um, given the hot year we had, uh, hot, dry year, I thought, well, shoot, let's take this a step further. So I ordered some labels back in July or August, 
with the intentions of doing it because I, I figured if it kept up, it'd be another early harvest and I could likely crank out a Cabernet Franc and have it on the market for um, Nouveau Day. And that didn't happen because there was a little too much CO2 still packed in there. Um, and I didn't want it to push cork. So I was about three weeks beyond uh, Nouveau Day when the wine hit the market. Um, and yeah, I mean, so far it's, I, I'm very happy with the wine. Uh, I've had some, some good feedback from it and it's, I think it's a style that I'm going to pursue every single year, but since it's Cabernet Franc, which is a late season variety, um, getting it on the market within the same calendar year, that's, I mean, we might be able to do that one out of three years and the rest of the time, probably more realistic January, February release. I want to get back to that, to the timeline, but Lynn, uh, did, were you able to open and taste the wine? Uh, yeah, I had it last night with dinner. Um, and, it was- well, since since both of your wines are, were absolutely delicious, nobody gets bragging rights today. So, uh, <laughs> you know, give it to us straight, you two. Um, Lynn, starting with you, talking about your experience with Nate's uh, Nouveau Cab Franc. Yeah, I think uh, it's opening it and like pouring it in my glass. I was like, yep, this is definitely a 2020 because uh, the color is remarkable. I mean, and that was a gift of 2020. I remember thinking when we brought reds in, I was like, I could just look at them and they would be purple. Um, but the, you know, what I loved was like the texture of it, this like beautiful, like you said, savory, almost a mix of like little lighter bramble fruits and um almost like currants. Uh, it was really beautiful. And I love the texture of it and the way it's it's lively. There's still some tan in there without being overwhelming. And again, just totally crushable. Yeah. Um, okay. So Lynn, keep, uh, keep the stage for a minute and talk, talk us through the process of your Blaufrankish Nouveau, which was definitely different. From, I mean, they're different grapes, so they should be different, um, but they do have some similarities. Both have an herbal savory quality to them, perhaps Cab Franc uh, a, a bit more so, but uh, your wine, definitely different. And I guess, yeah, I want to hear from you how how you perceive it to drink and then walk us through your process. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, the Blau Frankish uh, is very different. It's on a very, it's a much lighter spectrum uh, and with the idea, I wanted to do very traditional carbonic maceration, and it's supposed to be a very fun, lighthearted wine. Like I drink it slightly trill- chilled with the intention of drinking the whole bottle in one sitting. Um, and, the, and the idea that I'm not looking for this wine to necessarily age very long, I, it's just more it's supposed to be fun. Um, but like for me, the highlights of it are definitely the bright aromatics, the soft texture, and the flavors are delicate, but I think that they're there and they're lively. Um, but it was, it was a really, I'm really happy I got to bottle it on its own. Cause I wasn't sure that was going to be a possibility. Um, and it's just such a, even just looking at it, it's a beautiful wine. And where, what vineyard in the Finger Lakes did the Blancfrancish <laughs> in that bottling come from? So that one, uh, it was the first time I've worked with this grower, uh, Darren Simmons, and they're located on the bluff of Cuco Lake. So they kind of, it sits in between the two branches of Cuco Lake, which is in the shape of a Y. Uh, and it worked out that it was first year fruit off of that vineyard. So they were going to be handpicking it anyway uh, for us. And it was, it was kind of the latest, it was the last Lemberger that we picked, a pretty slow to ripen. It's a cooler location being up on the hill there. Um, but the fruit tasted incredible. And so we turned most of it into rosé and then I reserved a bit of it for myself to do the carbonic maceration. And do you have another red Blaufrankish in addition to the Nouveau? Yeah, we do. Uh, we have our standard Blaufrankish, but that'll be mostly, um, fruit from our site and Anthony Road. So the Nouveau, 100% Cuca Lake fruit. 100% 100% cucalate fruit. That's pretty cool. Okay. Um, so I'm curious because neither of you were able to release these wines in November. And Nate, you touched on this a, a, a little bit. So these are both made in the Nouveau style with the 
intention of being released very early. Lynn, do you is is Blau Frankish the same in Cabernet Franc in that it needs a little bit more time to ripen so that in each year it might be challenging to try to release by November? I think a little bit. I think uh, Blau Frankish usually comes in a little earlier for us, um, but it is still late and it's really vintage dependent, like Nathan was saying. I mean, Sometime, I remember in 2019, we weren't really picking reds until the first or second week of November. So the chance of getting that out by the third week is impossible. Um, and so a lot of it, this year was probably a little easier, but I still had things fermenting um, into November. And it for us too, I wasn't sure, My first, it's my first year at Cuca Spring Vineyards and this is a new product for them. So I wasn't sure what the destination could be, or that if it would be um, a part of our portfolio that we could continue to do. So, I mean, I'll try next year to do something in time for a nouveau season, but like he said, I don't know what the vintage is going to be, and maybe we're not picking Blau Frankish until November. So, um, either one of you, feel free to jump in. Nathan, I know that you look over your own books. Lynn, you're being so new to Cuca Spring, you might not uh, have your ear to the, the finances yet. But if you could, if you had to release later than November, even in December, January, or February, I mean, that's still pretty good for getting some early cash flow, is it not? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's... um. It's essentially better than rosé, isn't it? Lynn? Yeah, I mean, we we had a bit of a demand. So we've actually bottled our uh, Nouveau and rosé in the same week. Um, but yeah, I, that was kind of my thought as well. I was like, you know, January is a bit of a slow time. If we can get it out by then. And we made so little of it that it could the plan is to have it sold in within a month. And that's just a quick little bump and um, revenue in a typically slower period. Um, and it's something that I think like if we can do it like this year after year is a nice way to fill that kind of January, February shoulder period where we're a little slower. Lynn, I got, I, I can't help myself here. It, since you mentioned this is your first year at, as head winemaker at Cuca Spring, I mean, you've made some changes going in there and I got to give a shout out to our, our boy, August, who August Demel, friend of the pod, was a wonderful winemaker for many years at Cuca Spring, but you went in there and you made some changes. You were able to to, to release this uh, Nouveau, and you changed the name from Lemberger to Blaufrockish. Is that a is is that a conversation that you had to have with the owners that you that you could share with us on the pod here? I mean, I I inherited, so I can't take all the credit for that because August had been working on that before I got there. And they, I think with them, it wasn't a hard conversation. I think they saw the way the market was going and the recognition of Blau Frank, especially in places um, in the city where people might recognize it more than the name Lemberger. Um, so when I got there, uh, the 19s were being bottled under Blau Frankish, which was, um, you know, I, I think, you know, wouldn't have been a difficult conversation, but um you know, I the new having the nouveau was a bit of a conversation. Um, adding a skew, something that people may not understand or that might take a little bit more of an explanation to what it actually is, uh, and that was one of the, one of the things we really had to discuss before we finalized and actually bought the labels and uh, put it into bottle. That took that took a little a lot of meetings to figure out the direction of this wine. Cool. So I'm curious with this sort of difficulty that is getting the wines out by November. I mean, if you're going to both continue to work with these two grapes, Cab Franc and Blau Francish, and I guess Lynn, just to finish on that conversation, listeners, Blau Francish is known as Lemberger in Germany and Blau Francish in Austria. And it even has other names in other parts of Europe. But I think the the Austrian Blaufrankisch has had a bit more 
uh, of a fashionable marketing push in New York City. So probably a good idea to change from Lemberger to Blaufrankisch. Now that there's anything wrong with German Lemberger, it just hasn't had a, as much of a push here. So uh, for, for a branding angle, probably smart to go to Blaufrankisch. Um, with these two grapes in mind, do you both plan to to continue to to make nouveau styles from these grapes, or would you be open to other possible earlier ripening red grapes, maybe even red hybrids? Um, I I don't work with um, too many hybrids. I mean, we work with Foch and Deshaunac. Uh, I think personally, if I were going to work with other varieties, I would probably be looking at something like Saparavi, which we uh, work with, as well as Zweigelt, which um, I think can have two. Um, I, I just find that they, they kind of fit that same mold uh, or potential that I found with the Lemberger and even especially with Saparavi could be even more interesting. Uh, and so I think if if I had the chance to do a small lot of one or both of those next year, I would probably, that's the direction more I'm heading. Now with something like Deshaunic or Marichal Foch, would it be possible to push those through the process sooner to release in November? Not saying that you should do that. Just wondering uh, your experience yeah, working with those grapes. Do they ripen Fauche, earlier? Yeah. Foch is the one of the first things we brought in this year, uh, actually. So, um, that's the earliest thing to come off the vine. Deshaun X kind of, it's early, um, but still close. I mean, that there's a possibility with that. It's a little closer to mid season, I think for us. Uh, but they're both way early. They're both earlier than our typical vinifera reds. Okay. But your preference would be to continue to, to work with vinifera for your nouveau label yeah i think so i think it's more that like as um wines i prefer the saparavi and the flavor profile the zygelt and the blau frankish uh and so as in terms of my creative inspiration I, i'm looking to explore more of those flavors or what those varieties can do under different conditions Gotcha. Okay. So I'm just trying to, you know, as a sort of wannabe New York wines marketing guy, I'm trying to think, how do we make this Nouveau thing uh, a thing? You know what I mean? Maybe New York Nouveau has to have its own dedicated month, which is like the month of February or something like that, which could, I think, be quite cool because there's not a ton going on in February. It's still cold. Everybody's still at home. So having this sort of fun, festive New York Nouveau released if we were able to get a half a dozen producers or so together to commit to making this style that could be uh so that could be a, just a fun thing to do and everybody could make a little bit of cash nathan would you prefer that keep working with cabernet franc and have a later release and make a thing out of it or would you consider uh you know trying to piggyback off of the marketing power that that third week in November brings with the Beaujolais Nouveau and work with uh, some different grapes? What would be your preference? Oof. Uh, yeah, that's a tough one. Um, I mean, I'll never say never in trying to attempt uh, something with a different variety. Um, but at the same time, uh, ultimately, the wine has to be good. And I mean, I'm not going to work with a variety that I can pick earlier and crank it out for third Thursday for marketing purposes if it's a inferior product. Um, and that's why I really like the Cabernet Franc is because with a turnaround like that, you know, these wines don't see any times, any time in barrel or aging. And I think um, kind of going along with Lynn, uh, the Cabernet Franc, the flavor profile is, it's very complex. I mean, even on a young wine uh, without any sort of aging or blending. Like I, I like what this wine delivers on the pro, uh, flavor profile. Um, so I'd probably continue working with this, but I'm not close to maybe experimenting with other grapes. Gotcha. Okay. Much, uh, much food for thought for, uh, for next year. Um, I think I might, uh, might make the mistake by taking it upon myself to to rally some other producers to um to get a, a New York Nouveau thing happening for for February. 
Um, before I, I want to ask you both about Lynn, you made some Cabernet Franc too, that I want to chat with you about. Um, but before that, I want to just let everybody know about open local wine night. Most local wineries, wherever local is for you are hanging on through the pandemic through a combination of loyal wine club members, online orders, and a big dose of creativity. They've been able to stay afloat over the past 10 months with their tasting rooms that were either closed or significantly restricted. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a lover of local wines, and the wineries that make the wines we all love need our help. The team at Cork Report Media and I hope that you'll join us and wine lovers across the country on April 10th, 2021 for Open Local Wine Night, a celebration of exactly that local wine. It's easy to participate. Just buy some local wine, open it on April 10th, and post a picture on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook with the hashtag Open Local Wine. It's really as easy as that. And if you're a winery that would like to participate, please visit thecorkreport.us to register, and we'll see you on April 10th. I have noticed quite a few cool uh, Open Local Wine Night packages that have been advertised lately uh, by some really good wineries. So definitely look for those listeners, some very good deals out there. I saw deals from, from Osmote, from Forge, from Wagner in the Finger Lakes. And I'm sure we're going to see more as we get closer to April 10th. I hope uh, the two of you guys can uh, uh, convince your powers that be and and maybe uh, get a get a cool package out for Open Local Wine Night. Could be it's it's always fun. Okay, two things that I want you both to speak on since we've been talking about Nouveau, and and it does relate to this one whole cluster and two carbonic maceration, Lynn. Why don't you walk us through what exactly is carbonic maceration so that like me and a five-year-old could understand it? Uh, Okay, I'll do my best. Um, So what we do or what I did uh, with our carbonic blau frankish is we take whole cluster or whole berry fruit, um, put it into a vessel, and then we seal it up and saturate it with CO2. And when you have a environment that is uh, filled with CO2, the berries t- uh, start to do these inter, like a cellular um, micro fermentations. And it's not from yeast, it's from enzymes breaking down within each berry. And so you only really produce a small amount of ethanol during that and consume a little bit of sugar. But as the fruit sits there in that vessel, there's a bit of weight. And as the it breaks down and a few berries begin to burst in that environment, then you'll start to see a little bit more of your typical yeast fermentation. So the idea is to have whole intact berries in an environment full of carbon dioxide, if that makes any sense. Okay, Nathan, whole cluster, go. Yeah, so um, a lot of people define whole cluster in different ideas or methods. Um, but what I do is, uh, you know, taking the hand-picked, fully intact clusters and, you know, essentially putting them on the bottom of the fermentation bins and then topping up the bins with um, uh, whole berries. So clusters that have been distemmed, but the berries aren't crushed. So you do sort of get a little bit of that effect um, that Lynn was talking about, but not to that level. Um, and it's just something I've always been a fan of. Uh, we, I've been doing it since I got back here in 2011. And I think you get these wines that are, you know, brighter, uh, a little juicier, a little crunchier. Um, and it's a style that I think we can do, you know, on a consistent basis uh, every single year, provided that you're, you get enough physiological ripeness in the stems. And seeds. Okay, Lynn, is it possible to put to make a wine that saw carbonic maceration but had nothing to do with whole cluster fermentation and vice versa? Uh, so you're saying um, for carbonic, use like can you do it by a whole berry or? Well, I guess my my question is, and I think I know the answer, but I, I would just love to hear you two sort of break it down. Carbonic maceration and whole cluster uh, winemaking are linked. 
more often than they're not. Is that correct? Because essentially you get accidental carbonic maceration by processing uh, the grapes that have been picked whole cluster. Is that correct? Yeah, I think they're they're interconnected. I I think especially um, especially once you have with whole cluster, you get you start to get that uh, alcoholic fermentation happening. It's there are pieces of that ferment that are producing CO two that are protecting um, the rest of the whole clusters and causing that enzymatic really uh, reaction within parts of that. And with the traditional carbonic, or if you're doing whole cluster carbonic, you're going to get a little bit of that whole cluster character in your carbonic uh, ferment as well. So I think they're, they're very, they're linked. Um, it's just kind of two different methods. Okay. So I believe that I, as a simple wine drinker, very much like in particular, the red wines that I come across that have gone through some of this whole cluster or carbonic maceration process. And Nate, you met, you touched on this a little bit, some of the flavors. And I associate a, a fruit that is a fruit flavor combined with this savoriness that I find to be, to, to, to give the palate an extra bit of refreshing character. How is that achieved? Can you can you link that flavor, that juxtaposition of of flavors that for me I perceive to to give the the palate an even more refreshing character to the science? Um, not really. I mean, I can't break it down like that. It's uh well, let's face it, I didn't go to school for winemaking, you know. Um, but it's just something that I've found that does happen consistently when you ferment the wines in that particular style. Lynn, any ideas as to why I, someone like me likes this particular flavor in wine so much? Um, I mean, I can't speak to why you like it so much, but I think it's, uh, so I've, I was doing a little bit of research about um, kind of what happens at least with carbonic maceration. And I guess what, <laughs> That when the berries are having their little micro fermentations and you do have a little bit of that um, ethanol produced, it can create, it can esterify some of the grape components. And it, that's what gives you those kind of like bright red, like strawberry, raspberry aromas. Um, and it also can create different aldehydes that give you more kind of that um, almondy, nutty character. And so the process itself is lending the wine towards these kind of ruby, bright red fruits um, that we kind of associate with uh, carbonic or Nouveau style wines. And is this, so there are, there's a lot of red wines and, and Cabernet Franc and, and Blanc Francish and Pinot Noir and, you know, even that little bit of Gamay that is produced. There's, there's lots of red wine that I like to drink from New York and from the Finger Lakes, but I, I do know that the majority of those wines are still not produced using either the carbonic or the whole cluster method. Why is that? Is it simply because it's more labor intensive or is it more of a stylistic thing that maybe not as many people like this as, as much as I do or we do? Um, maybe more stylistic. And, you know, a lot of these wineries have been established for a while uh, you know, and they've got a loyal fan base. So, I mean, yeah, why change the winning team? Um, and then from a production end, uh, I dig out every fermenter personally myself. And I can tell you when you work with whole cluster, they are a pain in the neck to shovel out. Yeah, I, I, whole cluster is definitely harder. It's more challenging to work with sometimes, even during when you're trying to do cat management or, um, you know, we, I end up usually, if I'm doing like a 50% whole cluster, I'll usually end up doing pump overs because it's, it's really hard to break the cap if you're trying to punch down a whole cluster for men. Um, but I think too, uh, from 
my perspective, there's a lot of machine harvesting happening in the Finger Lakes, and it's a lot harder to coordinate hand pickers, and it's more expensive. Um, and so, logistically, from that aspect, you know, I've I, the stuff that I've done whole cluster, I either handpicked myself with my interns, or it was first year fruit and came off the vine that way. Um, but, you know, it's something that I have to coordinate a little more with the growers if they can get the pickers on time. Like this year, it wasn't as there, like there wasn't as much urgency this year because the weather was very dry. But if you're if it's raining or if we're having a series of bad weathers, weather, it's like really hard to coordinate picking crews to get the exact day that you want at the right time. Gotcha. OK, so. It's sort of it sounds like it's a combination, both a both a house style preference one way or the other, and also that it is a little bit more uh labor intensive. Um I hope I hope to see more red wines being made in that style. I know I know it's uh it's a it's a gamble, especially because, you know, like you said, Nate, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But the, these are these are just wonderful wines and, and they're not the style is not unique to 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 Cabernet Franc or Blau Francish. I mean, there's wonderful examples of whole cluster Pinot Noir and of course Gamay and Syrah and things like that. So I just think that uh, drinkers like me, you know, if you read on the back of a label or if somebody at a shop or restaurant or wherever tells you that, uh, you know, this red wine in particular has gone through this process, either carbonic or whole cluster, you might go ahead and and, and jump at the chance to, to drink that wine if it's a new wine, because you might find that you are like us and you very much like it. Uh, let's talk a little bit as we're uh, approaching an hour here, uh, about some of, some of the wines that you're excited about that you've produced in this last year. Uh, Lynn, beginning with you, you made a whole cluster Cabernet Franc with estate grapes from, uh, the Cuca Springs site on Cuca Lake that I was able to taste. And it is exactly this type of wine that I love that we're talking about right now. So first of all, bravo on that 2020 bottling uh talk a little bit about that and whatever else you're excited about that you've got uh in the hopper yeah um so that wine i oh no lynn i think i muted your mic by mistake are you able to unmute it yeah i unmuted it uh, podcast uh, amateur over here start over please <laughs> Yeah, so uh, that fruit in particular, uh, our site is steep slopes. Uh, we're at the northern part of Cuca Lake, so we're not quite the deepest. So it's a fairly cool site. And so it's quite easy for us to get that bright, refreshing red wine style that really emphasizes red fruit. Um, and this year, kind of being my first year um, being the head winemaker, I wanted to try a few things. And I wanted to do, it's a partial whole cluster fermentation. So I went out with my two interns and we picked about a half a ton of uh, the Cap Franc ourselves because I really wanted to experiment with it. And it was kind of the only way for us to get that done. And then the machine harvester came through and picked the rest of it um, off the site. But what I like about it is it's such a refined style, um, and but it, it has so much depth to it, uh, as well as like brightness of acidity and texture that I think make it such a complete wine. Uh, I think overall 2020 was such a gift uh, of a vintage, especially being my first uh, in the role of head winemaker. Um, but I th the reds are going to be spectacular. I mean, I'm really excited. This is my first year working with Saparavi. Um, and that wine is so generous on so many levels. Uh, I think it's, it's a wine that's a little polarizing because Saprabi can be so savory and so rich, and it does have this kind of acid tannin, um, balance where the acid's really high, but it also is high in tannin. Uh, this year was a little easier. I think the acids were a little bit more, in control, but the wine I think is tastes incredible. And I have that aging just in stainless steel at the moment. Uh, but that, the Cabernet Francs, even Merlot was really, I mean, this is some of the best Merlot I've ever tasted out of the region uh, coming out of 2020, but 
Um, I mean, I'm really excited. Everything is new for me this year, so I'm very excited about almost all of it. Um, Rieslings, uh, Gerbert Schmiener, we had some really impressive lots this year that came in. So I'm feeling like I have a wealth of quality right now, which, you know, I, I, in the finger links, you never know what you're going to get. So again, what a gift of 2020. Nate, what do you got? Uh, what do you got uh, that's coming out that you're excited about? Uh, I mean, I guess I'm pretty excited for most things across the board in 2020. Um, you know, we hit ripeness levels that we don't normally see and got some some good hang time as well. Uh, personally, I prefer the the cooler vintages, but that's just my palate talking. Um, but for this year, uh, probably most excited about sparkling wine, but that's I'd say that probably every year if you were to ask me that question. Yeah. What, uh, when is your, you have a traditional method, champagne method, sparkling wine that's been, uh, aging in bottle for a little while now. Is that finally going to be released this year? Yeah. So, um, that'll be coming out around, uh, November. So the idea was not to rush the process. And I mean, these, to do that wine justice, you know, you really got to do the aging proper. Um, otherwise you're just kind of going halfway with it. So that was aged for one full year in barrels on full gross lees. And then when it hits the uh, three-year mark um, in the bottle, then I'll be disgorging that, and it should be available around the holidays. But I'm really excited for that. It's, uh, what is it, Um, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Pinot Blanc, all uh, picked and co-fermented together in neutral barrels. So it's... um, it's a richer, more textured style of traditional method. Lynn, any ambition to make some sparkling wine over at Cuca Spring? Uh, yeah, we actually made one this year that I'm very excited about. Um, uh, we did, we used Zweigelt uh, as a kind of a Blanche Noir. I mean, it, it's kind of might be a Brut Rosé. I haven't really decided. It depends on kind of where the color ends up in the end, but um we just started working with it this year. We contracted one of our growers to plant two acres for us. And they, so again, they were having to handpick it. Um, and even at 16 bricks, the flavor was incredible. Uh, so we picked it early and some of it went into the rosé. And then the kind of that first initial press, we were making into a sparkling wine. And so far, it tastes really good. I mean, hopefully we'll have it on leaves for at least two years um, before it's released. But it's it's I'm really excited about the potential of Spiegelt as uh, sparkling sparkling wine. I'm also excited. Sounds very cool and delicious. Well, thank you both for chatting with me today. And if any listener is able to get their hands on either the Nathan K Nouveau of Cabernet Franc. I think Nathan, you're sold out of it, but there's probably some out uh, in the market on some, on the shelves of some wine stores. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I would imagine there's still a little bit out in the wild. Um, and we might have a couple of cases uh, at the tasting room as well. And Lynn, your uh, Blau Francish Nouveau is wine club only uh, at the moment, correct? And then the, the whole cluster Cap Franc will be released later in the year. Yeah, that's correct. So we only made um, 40 cases of that Nouveau. We're looking to make more next year. Um, And at this point, it's wine club only. They may release it to the public at some point, but uh, I don't think we're already halfway through selling it and it's been in the market for two weeks. So I don't know that it's going to last much longer. Uh, And yeah, the plan is to bottle the Cab Franc in uh, August. So um, a little bit of wait on that one. Very cool. Thank you both again for hanging out with me today and talking about Nouveau and Whole Cluster and Carbonic Maceration. I think these are stylistically wines that are uh, really breathing some great energy into red wine production from New York State. So thank you both. And I hope you're both able to get uh, some uh, some packs together for Open Local Wine Night. What do you think? Put your yeah. in the spot here. For sure we can make that happen. Make it happen. April 10th, Open Local Wine Night. Thanks again, Lynn Fahey and Nathan Kimball. 
awesome. Thanks, Paul.